If you turn in your Bibles to Exodus, the 12th chapter, I feel compelled to continue speaking along the line of the series that relates to the God of the festival. If you remember back several weeks ago, prior to when we were gone and Sunday or two before that even, we were speaking about the God of the festival. You want to know where your excitement and your joy over holidays comes from. The root of that ties directly to the heart of God because God is the the God of the festival, of the holiday, because he implemented all of these holidays. And if remember this, I'll just do a brief reminder. The word holiday itself comes from holy day, you see? So you want to know where a holiday comes from, whether it's Christmas or Thanksgiving or Labor Day or whatever. It's rooted in the heart of God because he is the God of the holy day. Now, that's a view of God that we need to keep in mind, that He is the God of festive joy. Festival is this Old Testament word for holiday or holy day. So when I say the God of the festival, I mean the God of the holy day, the God of the holiday. Now, when I was a kid, I think I've shared this before, but my life revolved around basically two times of year. It was May 19th and December the 25th. Y'all figure out May 19th later. But December the 25th was Christmas, and I had it mapped out to when we first started having those gatherings for Christmas. We, the, usually the first one that we had was the um, Lewis Christmas, we called it, which that side of the family would all come together, and we'd have a great festival. We'd have a, a holiday and enjoy one another's company. And then I had the the time that we would have the Christmas party at my class when I was in elementary school, you know. And then we'd have a get-together at my grandmother Springer's house on Christmas Eve, and then we'd have Christmas morning. And then it would all be capped off by uh, that Christmas night at Grandmother McCool's. Now, I know y'all, I've told you what a selfish little fella I was, probably a selfish big fella now, but... I'm sure you understand why I had mapped those out. Because at every one of those, I got a gift. <laughs> I loved getting those gifts. Now, I didn't care much about Thanksgiving back in those days because I didn't get a gift. <laughs> but now was some good food, don't get me wrong. Nowadays, I care more about those events like Thanksgiving where there's no pressure about giving gifts. But when I was a kid, everything revolved around those Holidays, and it was all because I was getting gifts. But I think back about how excited I would be. It was more than just the gift. I enjoyed seeing friends and relatives and cousins, and at least most of them. But uh, I enjoyed seeing people and getting together. But I think back on how excited I would get over those holidays and over those times of, of festival. Now, our God is a God of festive joy. He is the God of the holiday. And the last time I spoke to you on this subject, we talked about the weekly holiday that God implemented in, his, in the Jewish calendar, and that was the Sabbath on the Saturday. Every Friday afternoon, you know, the Jewish day ran from the afternoon to afternoon. Ours runs from morning to morning. But in the afternoon, that Friday afternoon of the weekly Sabbath, we talked about all the things that would go on. And if you recall that message, we looked at the times that Jesus is recorded as having done something or participated in the Sabbath, which he participated in every Sabbath. It said it was his custom, as it was his custom on the day of the Sabbath to be in the house of God, to be in the synagogue or the place of worship. We see where that Jesus 
didn't have a very good experience on the Sabbath day. He didn't have a very good time whenever it came to experiencing the Sabbath. He was always having the finger pointed at him on the Sabbath day. That's a bad way to experience the Sabbath. So the next one that we come to, or the next one that I've chosen to look at, is the Passover in Exodus 12. The Passover. Now, if you remember the quote that I really latched onto from the, the work of Alfred Edersheim, who was a Jewish historian, a Christian, one of the ways that he described the feast times, the festival times, was the tristings of Jehovah with his people. You know, tristing came from an old word that meant your favorite hunting spot or where you were going to meet to hunt. So the Lord, he trists with his people. And it comes, nowadays, it would mean more like a husband and a wife having a meeting time. I used the date night as a way to describe it. You know, a trysting time was when two people who are in love come together. That's a great way to describe the way the Lord comes to us. I hope we are reciprocal in that. And I hope that this puts a perspective on what we do nowadays. It's so simple. We don't have all of these different holy days that we are commanded to observe under the law. But Edersheim described it as the tristings of Jehovah with his people. You know, we ought not to be coming to the worship service, and I don't think you do, with a frown on our face. And we ought not to be beat over the head with different things that are going on. Now, there are times when things that are going on in the world must be pointed out from the pulpit. Because, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but whether it's your kids or you, if you're online, you're having things pointed out to you from the world almost every minute, (laughs) you see? So it would be folly for us not to point out things. Well, this is right. This is wrong. This is how to look at this issue. This is how to look at that issue. And then it comes down to your worship, where you come to worship God. I hope it gives a different perspective. And I hope that you see how all of these things from the Old Testament, whether it's the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, or whether it's one of the big three festivals like the Passover, I hope you see how it comes down to what you're doing today. That what you, what you experience here is, if you will, let me put it this way, a perfection of all of those feasts coming together for one singular person, capital P. I don't think I have to explain to you who that person is. It's Jesus Christ. Okay, so the seven big yearly festivals that went on under the Mosaic Law were as follows. And I don't expect you to remember all these, but it's Passover. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And that is distinct. If you'll read the Scripture, that is distinct from the Passover. Even, they, even though they connect and they piggyback on one another, it's a distinct festival. The Word of God mentions it as a separate festival. The Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the first fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, y'all count up how many that was? How many was that? It's seven. How many times has the number seven come back again and again and again in the, in the Jewish economy and what the Lord comes up with? Now, as we break down this feast, the Passover, it is perhaps the most significant one because it kind of begins everything when it comes to the Jewish calendar. Okay, the Passover is rooted in Exodus, the 12th chapter. Now, there was a form of this Passover being observed from ancient antiquity. In the days of Abraham, even back to the days of Abel, who was sacrificing a lamb 
When Abraham was sacrificing lambs, you see, you could see the root of this all through antiquity. So don't say, well, I'm just not that interested in history. The fact that you're here today doing what you're doing is a result of what was rooted in antiquity. And it comes from God. I'm telling you, people say, well, I just don't know, you know, this was just some kind of fable or something that, that people came up with to satisfy, you know, their, the itch that they had to think that there's a God. Who in the world in their mind could have come up with this type of system? You know, in many ways, all of these feasts and all these things that were going on, they seem so complex. There's no human that could have come up with this, much less the significance of it. Because everything, if you remember, Jesus himself said, all scripture points to Jesus Christ. Okay? So the word Passover itself, it first occurs in Exodus, the 12th chapter. And it's very interesting that this word is used only in reference to the Jewish Passover. It's the Hebrew word Paschah or Pascha, which means to exempt, to step over. The root word means to step over or to overleap something. Now, when the word itself that relates to Passover, it is used only of the Jewish Passover in the Bible, of the festival, of the day, of the meal, and of the victim. The way that the Lord interchanges the word Passover with all of those different elements, the, the festival, the day that they observed it, the actual meal itself, and the victim is very significant. Because sometimes you'll see here in Exodus 12 and verse 11, the Lord of the Passover says, Thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. He's referring to the meal, the Passover meal. When he says eat it, he's talking about the Passover meal. In another place, he speaks of keeping the Passover, which is referring to the day. In another place, he says to observe the Passover, which is referring to the festival. And in Exodus 12 and 21, Notice this, it says, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families, and watch the language, and kill the Passover. You catch that? It's very significant that he speaks of eating the Passover, killing the Passover. And in all of those contexts, he has a little different take on it. When he says kill the Passover, what do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the lamb. <laughs> you see that? Kill the lamb, and that's what you're going to eat as the Passover. So it's amazing how God simplified the understanding of this. Now, if you're sitting there and thinking, well, Brother Tim, I, I really don't know what the Passover is. We need to get out your, the Word of God and start studying and reading, because that's one of the most important events of all time. I'm just assuming that everybody understands what the Passover is. Whenever the children of Israel were in Egypt as slaves for 430 plus years, and the Lord said, I'm bringing you out. They're going to be born as a nation in one night. And it's all because of the Passover. Because the Lord said, I have judged. Listen, the Lord didn't just judge Egypt. He judged everybody that was in Egypt, including the Israelites. Everybody was judged. We want to think, well, those bad Egyptians, and they were bad. And those slave, those men and, and folks that were supporting that type of bondage and slavery over other human beings. Yeah, that's bad. But understand that the Lord judged all of Egypt, including the Israelites who were in the land of Goshen. And the only way the Israelites are getting out from under that judgment is by a furry little lamb. It's going to be sacrificed for the house. And the blood of that lamb is going to be put on the doorpost and above the door. Now that's it in a nutshell. 
So it's very simple. The Lord says, when I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. I will overleap. I will step over your house and the judgment of God won't come into your house. But the places where there was no blood, the death angel came into the house and took the life of the firstborn. Everybody in Egypt was judged. Don't ever forget that. But it was the blood that brought a nation out of Egypt that night. So it's very significant. The Passover is the most significant event in the history of Israel up until the time of Christ. So it says to eat the Passover. It says to observe the Passover, to keep the Passover. And even Moses says to kill the Passover. Now the mechanics of it, on the 10th day, and by the way, this was the month, it was the month of March, April. Because their calendar, the Jewish calendar is a little bit different. It kind of, it would be like halfway through a month for us, for you know March, April. So look, We'll just say for the sake of simplicity, the month of April. Nisan is what they called generally our month of April. And so basically on the 14th day, excuse me, the 10th day of Nisan, the Lord said, take the best lamb of the flock and put it up. And when he says put it up, he means bring it into your house. Now, some of you may remember a message I preached a year or two ago where I want you to think about your favorite little pet. (laughs) You know, and, and can you imagine your favorite little cat or your favorite little dog? You know, I joke many times. Somebody said I'm using Frankie too much in the messages. But, you know, think about Abigail's little false god, Frankie. And, and if God commanded her to put that animal to death in my name, that would not be an easy thing to do. You think about your little pet or what you hold dear in terms of an animal. Now, some people may be holding their pets a little too dear in this day and time. But if you had to take that animal and you had to sacrifice it, you know, they're bringing this little beauty. Have y'all ever seen a lamb? They are absolutely adorable, little furry, fluffy. And you say, well, you know, why didn't God use a tiger? (laughs) Or why didn't God use a lion? Or why didn't he use this big strapping elephant? It's because God in his wisdom wants us to see that the foolish things of the world, uh, God can use the foolish things of the world, the cute things like a lamb, and he can deliver an entire nation. That's how wise God is. You see? Do you think about your favorite little pet? And here's this father goes out to the flock and he brings in this beautiful little baby lamb with no blemish on it. And he begins to feed it. And, and it, you know, we even read in the days of David that that man's favorite little lamb, the, the story that Nathan gave to David to convince David of his sin, was about a man who would bring that little lamb into the house and feed it from the table. <laughs> I'm not advocating that by any means, but you understand, this was a precious animal. And so here's this beautiful little lamb that comes in and the kids get used to it and they, they see it and they pet it on, from the 10th day until the 14th day. This lamb is bound for a knife. It's bound for death. I imagine there was probably a few tears shed there as they gathered around the the Passover feast and they ate that precious little lamb that they had killed and cooked. And then you looked over the doorpost and there was blood on the doorpost and above the door. You see, there might have been a few children there that were shedding tears as they were eating that Paschal lamb. Now, the, the meal itself included the lambs. Very simple. It included the lamb, which a bone of the lamb was not to be broken. You ever read the Psalms about Jesus Christ? A bone was not to be broken. And they also had unleavened bread, which was very flat, very thin. If you don't put leaven in bread, it's not going to blow up and be real thick. 
like the, are, are real fluffy like the breads that you see when you go to the store and buy bread in the store. It's going to be real flat like the, uh, like the um, communion bread that we use. Y'all remember? Y'all know how this ties in? Are you listening? <laughs> the communion bread is unleavened bread that we still use today that goes back to this day here where the first Passover was held. So they ate the lamb which was roasted, usually on a spit, which means it was a, a stick or a, sometimes a piece of metal, was stuck from the mouth to the backside of that lamb. You think about that lamb being pierced, the body of that lamb being pierced by this spit. Does that remind you of anything? Where the lamb of God was held up basically on a spit, on a cross, and he's crucified? I tell you, there's so much symbolism here at Take years and years and it'd take a lifetime to try to preach all that out so i won't try to <laughs> but you understand the lamb was laid on the table and then they had unleavened bread on the table and it said it's also to be eaten with bitter herbs now i've thought about those bitter herbs and read some commentaries about them and i the commentary that i read from alfred edersheim is the one that really uh, helped me understand what's going on here with the bitter herbs of, of course the symbolism of the bitter herbs is they were coming out of bitter bondage in Egypt, you see? They had been in bondage. And the story of grace, by the way, I'll just give this in there to you for free, the story of grace is always from bondage to freedom. That's the story of grace. Your life is the story of being in the bondage of Egyptian darkness and lost in your nature and in your sins to absolute freedom because of what? The blood of Jesus Christ. You see? So here they are eating these bitter herbs. You say, that doesn't seem like it would taste very good. Well, in the Mishnah, which was a Jewish commentary, it says that there were usually five types of vegetables that came under the category of, of bitter herbs. And I don't really have a problem with this. I think, I think it's accurate. <laughs> Lettuce, endives, or endives, however you say that, suckery, beets, Coriander, those are the five vegetables that were considered to be okay to use among the bitter herbs. Now, take all those five things together and put them in a bowl and what you got? Come on, y'all awake this morning? You got a salad. Thank you, brother. Praise God, somebody's listening. You got a salad. So here you are with a salad and a, a main course, you see, and you've got bread is it, does this ring a bell? The next time you sit down and eat a salad, but unless you put something with it, it's going to taste kind of bitter. You ever just tried lettuce by itself? It's terrible. At least it is to me. I always call it rabbit food. <laughs> it's terrible. I, some of these other things, I cannot eat a beet by itself. Those things, even if you cook it, I just don't care for it. Some of these other things, I don't even really know what they are. But it, it says that they would add or at least have available in a bowl salt water or vinegar. Well, What's that when you add it to a salad? Salad dressing. You get it? Yeah, next time y'all, look. I'm trying to impress upon the people of God just how relatable this stuff is. Can you relate to that? The next time you put a vinegar-based dressing on your salad, the lettuce and the other things that you've got in there, would you think back to this message and say, hey, that's something Brother Tim preached on. Well, you know, I just can't really relate to anything. <laughs> Your very salad that you eat, it can make you think of the bitter herbs. And I'm going to tell you what, unless I get enough dressing on my salad, the salad is bitter. Are y'all with me? Now, salads back when I was a kid, that's, you know, people used to say, well, I'm going to eat a salad so I can stay thin. 
Well, you better watch that today. Have you seen the salad bars lately? <laughs> they are packed with everything that can help you take away the taste of that bitter salad. <laughs> are you with me? <laughs> I love a salad. I love to pile it up. You know why? It's kind of like drinking coffee. If I get enough stuff in my coffee, then I won't taste the coffee. <laughs> if I get enough stuff on my salad, I won't taste the bitter salad. I'm not going to eat lettuce by itself. I'm not a rabbit. <laughs> you see? So they had this bitter-tasting salad with a vinegar-based or saltwater-based dressing that they would eat as they ate the unleavened bread, as they ate the lamb. And so you say, well, you need something to wash it down, right? Well, there's only three things that they had to drink back in those days. There's only three things. It wasn't like going into the 7-Eleven or to the grocery store and there's 10,000 different choices of drinks that you could get. There was no Mountain Dew. There was no energy drinks. There was wine, milk, and water. And they didn't drink water that much because you had to boil it to make sure the impurities were out of it so it would be safe to drink. So they usually drank milk and they usually drank wine. Well, at the Passover feast, guess what they drank? Wine. You see? Next time you sit down for communion, and if there's some of you here that haven't taken in the communion before, you ought to be so excited about the next opportunity you have to sit down and take communion because you're going to participate in what is the perfection of something that goes back to the night that the Israelites came out of bondage and a nation was born. Isn't that something? That ought to be enough reason to join the church right there alone. You get that? You say, Brother Tim, can you, you seriously think that we have had an unbroken succession of observing communion since those days. I, I am absolutely crazy enough to think that. You know why I think that? Because the Lord Jesus Christ said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I believe it. So when you sit down and you take that communion next time and you eat that unleavened bread and you drink that wine, and I know some of you sitting there thinking, well, why don't we have salad with it? <laughs> Maybe we'll get to that. And I know some of you are thinking, well, what about the lamb? Do I really have to explain that? I hope we'll see what happened to the lamb that was on the table. We'll see that as we close out here this morning, I hope. So the meal itself, the lamb roasted, the unleavened bread, the salad, the bitter herbs, and the wine. Sorry, people like me would be very disappointed. There was no dessert. <laughs> Uh, you know, my grandmother, McCool, she didn't fix a meal without fixing dessert. She always had to have something sweet. And I know my dad would say, well, you know, I didn't quite get the proper taste of that sweet, so I'm going to eat a little bit more of the meal, then I'll go back and eat some more sweet. I, I learned that from him. So <laughs> I've had a sweet tooth since I was old enough to remember anything. <laughs> but there was no dessert. But, you know, one of the reasons there was no dessert is because there was no time. That first Passover when they were in Egypt, he said to put your clothes on, have your loins girded, eat it quickly, eat it in haste because you're coming out. What's the key for you to be coming out when you hear the cries of the people in Egypt who are crying because of the loss of their firstborn? It's time to go. As a matter of fact, the people of Egypt came out mourning and saying, get these people out of here. There was not a single house in the nation of Egypt that didn't have a person dead. And so they come out and say, let them go. Everybody's dying. Everybody's dead. This God, Jehovah, is, is some kind of God because he's taken the life of our firstborn. Get them out of here. And a nation was born in one night. Listen, 
the significance of the Passover is tremendous. First of all, the Passover reminded them of nature. It's in April. What's happening in April? You know, April showers bring May flowers. It's the time that winter is now dying. You know, winter is a time of death. Everything dries up. Everything falls off. Everything's dying. But when spring comes, doesn't it just bring a, a spring to your step whenever you start to see those flowers bloom, whenever you start to see all the things coming out, you start planting the garden. This is a time of nature that God uses to, to bring the people's minds back to He is the one who is the life giver. You see? Even the seasons of this world that we live in testify to the grace of God. So the first thing that the Passover reminded them of was this, it's springtime. It's time for things to grow. It's time for things to begin to bud. <laughs> and it also reminded them of the springtime of the birth of their nation. Because here they have been captive for 400 plus years and they're in hard bondage having to build and do things that should not be required for people to do as slaves there. And here they are in one single night. They're coming out. They're free. They're a nation born in one time. It's the springtime of Israel's history. See how God uses that time frame? And I know some of you surely are sitting there thinking, you know, well, in terms of what we observe each year, of Easter, that's not a biblical word that we use in relation to the resurrection, but we always remember in the time of April is normally whenever you think of that resurrection day, you see? It's the same time of year. Christ was crucified in April, the month Nisan, in April of the Passover. Not only was there a natural significance to this time of year because it's springtime, there was also a historical significance because this is when the nation was born. And then there was a further looking to the future significance, a bud, if you will, a seed planted that was destined to blossom through the Lord Jesus Christ and impact all nations one day and not just the nation of Israel. The very fact, of the fact, the very fact that you're sitting here today and you're not from the nation of Israel, you're not from natural Israel, you're not uh, from a natural Jewish descent, the very fact that you as Gentiles, non-Jews, are sitting here observing this today is a testimony to that bud, to that seed, that flowered and blossomed in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord kept alluding to that. As a matter of fact, the Lord alluded to that whenever He spoke to Abraham. And He took Abraham out and He showed him the stars of the sky. That was probably in the middle of the day, by the way, if you'll read that carefully. In the middle of the day, uh, the Lord shows the stars of the sky. And a miracle. He says, look at the stars of the sky. Can you number them? He said, I can't number them. And He says, you're, you're going to have children like that. It's going to be like the stars of the sky. It's going to be like the sands of the sea. That was a reference to the coming time when the bud would bloom and blossom in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all nations, he says, would be blessed because of the seed of Abraham. Are y'all with me? And all of that is contained in the significance of the Passover. The bud was destined to blossom. There's coming future grace for the people of God. Now I'm telling you, they could rejoice in instant grace because they were made free from the bondage of Egypt. And child of God, when you see what God has done for you, when you see that He is the springtime of your spiritual life, whenever you see, you see that He has brought you out from hard bondage in Egypt, slaving over your own sins, and He has set you free, I tell you, you have instant grace right now. And it's a springtime of your life any time of year right now when you see that. You can rejoice in it. But there's also a future grace coming when the Lord comes back. By the way, I don't think I mentioned this, but the Passover was one of the big three feasts 
of those seven yearly feasts that you were required to leave your home and come to Jerusalem or to the place where God set his name. So you see that you had that first Passover observed in Egypt and they came out and they wandered for 40 plus years or for 40 years. Then they come into the land of promise and for several years they come to the place where the tabernacle was. God says, where I set my name, that's where you come. And eventually in the days of David, Solomon, they set up the temple. And so people for hundreds of years, Jewish people, would come to Jerusalem to observe the three major feasts where you were required to leave your home and come there. And the Passover was one of those feasts. We were gone for two weeks out west and the the first day that we were really in the city or the town of Cody, Wyoming, was the 4th of July. And so somebody said, well, the parade's going to be at you know, such and such time or another. And I figured out if we didn't get moving, we were going to miss the parade. Of course, we wound up the parade was two hours long, so we wouldn't have missed anything. But, so I remember how excited it was. I love festivals. I, I love, think about it, it's the 4th of July. It's our nation's Independence Day. So we get down there and we just happen to pop out right where we needed to pop out. And here comes the first little group passing and band after band after band and American flag. And, all. and it was just such a wonderful time. It was such a great fest. One of the best Fourth of July's I've ever had. Just standing there watching you know, this parade and seeing all the festive joy that was going on. But you understand that the independence of America took a little while, Right. <laughs> You know, we declared independence on July 4, 1776. You know, about seven, eight years later, we finally gained our independence. Y'all get that? We had to fight for it. And against all types of odds, it had to be the providence of God for those men and women to be able to move forward in freedom like they did. But this is a nation who was born in one single night. And you try, you see if you can orchestrate that. There's no way anyone but God Himself could orchestrate an Independence Day, an Independence Night in one single night. But God did. And that's because of the Passover. Because He judged the entire area, but the ones that had the blood... He passed over them, and they came out as a nation. Now, there's many notable Passovers in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll just mention a few of them. Obviously, Exodus 12 is the most notable, one of the most notable because that's the beginning when they come out as a nation. You, you don't read about too many Passovers in the Old Testament. There's one mentioned in the time of Solomon, in the time of Josiah, in the time of Ezra. Now, I think 1 Samuel 1 If you want to turn there, I think that is a Passover. Now, it definitely was one of the big three feasts, and I just just choose to believe that it was the Passover. This is where you read about a man named Elkanah. 1 Samuel 1. You read about a man named Elkanah who brings his family for the yearly feast. Verse 3. This man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now this is before it was in Jerusalem, okay? This was whenever the tabernacle was in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was come that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But remember, he had a second wife, a co-wife. Hannah, but unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. Now the reason I point this out is because you, you can get distracted when it comes to the Lord's today, 
to the worship of the Lord. Can you think of anything more distracting of going up for the yearly Passover? Or think about in terms of coming up for weekly worship. Can you think of anything more distracting than, than hearing or seeing firsthand that the, the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, are having affairs and running around with some of the women that gathered around the, the tabernacle? Now, wouldn't that be distracting? It, oh man, you know, you know, you heard about what that preacher did. I tell you, we're living in a day and time when so much of that is rampant among the ministry. You can read every other day when there's some scandal coming on the scene. Well, can you imagine going up for the yearly feast to sacrifice your lamb? And oh, did you hear? You know, there's a new affair going on. You know, Hophni's cheating on his wife. Phinehas, you know, he's cheating on his wife. It would be a mess, would it not? And not only that, you come up to worship, and the next thing you know, you've got infighting going on among the family. <laughs> you know, they're at each other's throat. This, this family member, and I understand they were co-wives, I get that, but you could, you could turn it into siblings. You know, you could turn it into mamas and daddies and children. And they're just at each other's throat. How in the world could anybody worship in this scenario? Well, good old Elkanah, he pushed on, didn't he? Praise God. Let that be a lesson to us today. No matter what we face, no matter what comes down the road, no matter what issues come to the people of God, keep pushing to worship the Lord. Keep pushing. No matter how bad it gets, it doesn't matter if it's three people in Denver or if it's four people in Cozad or if it's 100 plus people in West Alabama. It doesn't matter. Just keep pushing to worship the Lord. I praise God for this man. He had a difficult situation. He would have been able to, you know, in nature just to say, it's not worth it. You know, we go up there and all we hear about are these priests who are running around with these wild women. And then on top of that, I've got my co-wives or my family members are at each other's throat. <laughs> That's terrible, isn't it? The reason I tell you that is I, I don't think you're facing anything like that, are you? <laughs> if anybody says amen, we need to talk afterwards, okay? <laughs> I don't think any of you are facing anything like that. You say, well, somebody, you know, they, they looked at me funny. <laughs> Maybe their stomach was hurting, you know? I look funny when my stomach hurts. You know, or maybe they're in pain. Maybe they are being weighed down by the cares of this world. Well, they looked at me funny. Go talk to them. Don't pull back. Don't refuse. To say, oh, you know, so-and-so didn't look at me right. Or so when they spoke to me, it didn't sound very friendly. You know, we can get into so many crossed-up situations uh, because of our nature and because of the things that we think in our mind whenever we actually find the truth of the matter. It's not even like that. You see? And here's the bottom line. You say, well, Brother Tim, it's hard to push through some of that stuff. But look, Christ is worthy to push through anything. He's worthy. <laughs> Somebody in the past has pushed through something. And probably something much worse maybe than what you have pushed through. We need to praise God for that. He's worthy. There's some very notable Passovers in the New Testament. You know, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that we're going to try to look at the foundation of how this feast came to be. And then we'll see how Jesus interacted on some of those feasts. In Luke, the second chapter, if you want to turn there, we're not going to comment very much at all on all of these, but it does bear mentioning that in Luke, the second chapter, it says that his parents, Jesus' parents, went up for the Passover. And this is where they lost their son. You remember that? <laughs> you know, Jesus is 12 years old, and whenever they get ready to leave after the Passover feast, after the, and then after the following seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, when they get ready to leave, for three days they travel and they realize they have forgotten Jesus. <laughs> now there was a couple times in my life way, way back. Don't worry, statute of limitations has passed. But a couple times way back when we were meeting over there, I, we left a fella or two sleeping on the back pew. You know, we drove off and 
So Tracy says, where's so-and-so? They'll remain nameless. Be like, oh, they're not in here. Oh my goodness, they're asleep. You know, but it was very quick that we caught that. Praise God. All of you parents have probably had experiences like that. Where's so-and-so? You know, and three days goes by and Joseph and Mary have not missed Jesus. And they finally say, where's Jesus? He's not here. They rush back to Jerusalem and there they find him eventually in the temple talking and conversing with the doctors of the law. 12 years old. That's a pretty notable Passover, is it not? In John, the second chapter, in verse 13, you have a notable Passover. When Jesus comes up for the Passover in John 2, notice what he finds. Let's read in verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. I tell you, there's no place in the house of God to make merchandise of the people of God. You understand that? There's no place in the house of God to lose the focus of why we're here. The Lord said, to them. He said, you're putting your emphasis on the money, on the dollar figure, on the actual activity. He said, I want you to focus on what you're supposed to be here for. He says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You see, to worship and, and glorify God. Is that not a commentary on modern religion today? Whenever churches are run uh, based on the bottom dollar and like some kind of a business and the preacher's more like a CEO than anything. I tell you, we need to get back to what Jesus said and cast the money changers out of the temple and come and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth where we focus on what the purpose of the Passover is because it's still there today. Passover's still there today. His disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Later on, the disciples were going, what is he doing? He's, you know, he didn't beat anybody up. And he didn't raise himself up to a 20-foot stature as he could have as God. He just took a scourge. And in his humanity, he ran them out of the temple. See? Another place that we read about Jesus on the Passover is in John 12. We read in verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This is the Passover. John 12 and 12. They took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, by the way. And let me just say this side note here. When it came to the feast and when you sat down uh, and you had, the, uh, you had the Passover lamb and you had the salad and you had the wine and you had the unleavened bread, uh, the, they would take a cup and they would drink a cup and they would bless it. See? And they used the blessing from the Psalms. That was one of them. They would speak about blessed is the name of the Lord. Blessed is God who's delivered us from Egypt. Blessed is the Lord who is our sovereign God. You can read what they read and actually what they sang there whenever they would take the Passover. This is one of those hymns, if you will. They would sing. You remember it says over there whenever Jesus took the Passover for the last time and He implemented the New Testament Passover, the New Testament communion, it says that they sung a hymn and went out into the Mount of Olives. They were singing from the Psalms. They were singing things like this. Blessed is He that cometh in the name of the Lord. You see? Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not His disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, they understood these things. Significant Passovers. And of course, the most significant Passover of all is the Passover that he observed that ended the Mosaic Passover. 
You can read about that in practically all the Gospels. Luke 22, Jesus says to his disciples when it was clear that it was time for them to go and eat the Passover, he says, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? That's Luke 22 and verse 11. Jesus said, say to go into the city and you'll find a man carrying a pitcher of water and whatever uh, Whatever house this man goes into, ask the good one of the house, where is the guest chamber? So the very last Passover of the Mosaic law, of the Mosaic economy, was observed in this guest chamber where Jesus comes, they observe the Passover, and then he implements the New Testament Passover. So I want to ask you, what is your experience with the Passover today? Whenever you come for communion twice a year you know there's no relegation on how many times a year you're supposed to observe it but the two times a year that we observe communion that is the perfection of the lord's passover where is the lamb you know jesus gave them the wine jesus gave them the bread he blessed it he divided the wine to them and he blessed the bread and he divided the bread to them he says take eat this is my body this do in remembrance of me he said of the wine drink this this is the new testament the covenant of my blood drink this in remembrance of me but where is the lamb i tell you that night the lamb was sitting at the table the lamb was there and it was the lamb of god the same lamb of god that john the baptist said behold the lamb of god who taketh away taketh away the sins of god's people you see that so the lamb is still there it's jesus christ as a matter of fact the apostle paul said in first corinthians he said, Christ is our Passover. You hear me? You want to know how it impacts you today? Christ is our Passover. He is the embodiment. He is the Passover. See, the Lord looked upon the blood of Jesus whenever His, when his body hung on that spit, when His body hung on that cross and His blood was splattered across that cross on the sides and on the middle of that cross like the doorpost and the, and the top of the door. As Christ hung there on that cross, the Lord leaped over. The Lord stepped over you in judgment and He judged His Son and His wrath came down upon His Son so that you don't have to bear the wrath of God. So every day is the Passover for you, child of God. Do you understand that? Every day is the day that you can look and see that the Lord has overstepped your sins and He has stepped on His own Son so that you can live a life to glorify Him. Every day is the Passover. Whenever you come here from week to week and you say, well, why don't we have those seven festivals? I tell you, the seven festivals are embodied in the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ from week to week. You remember that first festival was the Sabbath from week to week as they gathered and they rested because God said, I'm finished with my work. I tell you, child of grace, that Christ is your Sabbath. And when you come week to week and you worship Him, you should be resting in Him. You should be resting in the fact that God has judged Him. And you can rest as the Lord rested. You see, the Lord's not holding your sins over you anymore. The Lord is not judging you anymore. The Lord has judged His Son. So you observe the Sabbath from week to week when you come to worship. Not only that, but you can see clearly how you observe the Passover. You see, the Lord passed over your sins the Lord did not take out His judgment on you. So from week to week, you are observing the Passover. Christ, when you come here, you're observing the Sabbath. You're observing the Passover. As we go on through this series, Lord willing, hope you'll see how that every time we come together, all of those feasts are embodied. Child of grace, don't bring your bitter herbs to the table. Don't bring your bitter herbs to the table. Remember the Passover had the bitter herbs, the salad... Didn't taste very good. Don't bring your bitter herbs to the table because the Lord no longer has anything bitter 
in terms of what He has done for us. Don't bring your sins there and think about how you're just not worthy and you just can't approach and you just can't this and you just... God has paid for your sins. It's almost like saying His, his sacrifice wasn't enough. <laughs> you see? It's almost like saying, well, He just didn't do it quite good enough because I'm just a case here that's just too hard for the Lord. Let me tell you, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. There's no case too hard for Him. And when you come to worship the Lord for week to week, it's holiday. Let me tell you, it's holy day. It's something that we ought to be preparing for from the time that we leave this place until the time that we arrive again. It might be a midweek service, but especially from the week to week service, we ought to be preparing ourselves. It's not bitterness. It's not hard bondage anymore. The Lord has taken you out of Egypt, out of the Egypt of your sins, and He has set you free. You ought to be excited about observing the Lord's Sabbath, the Lord's rest. You ought to be excited about observing the Lord's Passover because He's passed over you. <laughs> and if you've never expressed that in a public way, if you've thought you're just not worthy, well, I tell you, you're right. In one sense, you're not, and I'm not either. But God's Passover, Jesus, has made you worthy. You have the body and the blood of Jesus sacrificed for your sins. So now, in Christ, you are worthy. He's made you worthy. All because of the Passover. If you believe that, what doth hinder you from being baptized? We give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.